This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. I became familiar with sigmoid curve several years ago and I found it to be true and accurate, especially when it's used to describe the life cycle of an organization. The sigmoid curve is based on the mathematical function that resembles the Greek letter sigma, or to you and I, the letter S. The sigmoid curve has been referred to as the key to growth and transformational change in Forbes magazine, as well as the model for constant business growth and innovation. To understand the concept, write the letter S. Now place your writing instrument at the bottom of the letter and start tracing upward. Every organization has a beginning, and as you trace upward along the S from the top to the bottom, this initial movement represents the growth period of an organization, and then at the top of the letter, it plateaus as you reach a good place as a movement and things begin to stabilize. However, it doesn't take long before the letter begins to dip downward as you near the end of the letter. I believe this is the life cycle of organizations, movements, groups, and businesses. From where I sit, it takes exceptional leadership to intercept and implement positive change at the top of the growth or at the plateau to ensure the organization goes to the next level of effectiveness. Every organization will go to a next level. Depending on the ability of leadership, they will determine whether that level is up or down. I think we, the Food Bank Council of Michigan and our seven Feeding America food banks, are here right now for such a time as this. In the midst of political unrest, dissatisfaction, we are growing, we are evolving, we are learning, Yet there are few challenges, like food insecurity, that has the power to unite us. Jerry Brisson joins me momentarily, and we welcome Mr. Joel Berg, the leader of Hunger Free America, as our guest today on this edition of Food First Michigan. Welcome back, everyone. As promised, Mr. Joel Berg is with us. Jerry Brisson is in the studio, and I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and you're listening to Food First Michigan here on WJR. So, Jerry, uh, you and Joel have uh, have uh, chatted and become acquaintances in this work. Why don't you take the opportunity to inter- introduce him? Well, I will. I mean, Joel is one of the thought leaders around how to really address the issue of hunger in America. He's been at this for a long time. Um, what impressed me when we met in my office, he was coming to town to, um, you know, really do some talking about the the feeding kids over the summer when school is right. out and how do we really address that problem, if I remember that right, Joel. And, uh, and so he asked if he could get together and just talk about a little bit of the work they're doing at Hunger Free America, and, and we ended up having just a riveting conversation uh, about, you know, how do you really solve 
the problem of hunger in America. And I, I enjoyed that a great deal, and we've stayed in touch since then, and I thought it would be an honor and a privilege if Joel could spend a little time on our show talking about his journey and a little bit about Hunger Free America and then kind of dive into uh, how do you solve this problem. So, Joel, welcome, and uh, Thank thanks so for much. joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, and thank you both for the work you do and getting the message out. Well, it's exciting to have you for sure. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to uh, our audience here and across Michigan um, and, you know, here on WJR and also on our podcast. And tell us how you became the CEO for Hunger Free America. So Hunger Free America is a nationwide anti-hunger and advocacy group, uh, and we provide some direct service. We don't distribute food, but we help people access government benefits like the SNAP program, uh, the actual name for the old food stamps program, summer meals, school breakfast, etc. And we fight for different government and economic policies to actually end this problem. Just to give Michigan as an example, according to USDA, between 2016 and 2018, about 12.9% of the population of Michigan lived in households that couldn't afford enough food. That's one in eight people in Michigan struggling against hunger. And even though much of the country, it's actually gone down marginally over the last decade, it's 8% higher in in Michigan than uh, a decade ago. And Hunger Free America's own survey found about one uh, one in six children, one in 14 seniors, one in nine working people in Michigan live in households that can't afford enough food. And to fix this, would be $676 million worth of increased food purchasing power for low-income people. And I say that because even though the food banks in Michigan do amazing work and definitely need and deserve more support, our point is all the food banking in the world isn't going to be able to fix this problem unless we change some of the structural problems. So that's what we're doing at Hunger Free America. I've been here a little over 18 years. We grew from a relatively small organization called the New York City Coalition Against Hunger and changed our name about four years ago because we really thought this was a national problem that needed a national response. Uh, Before that, I served for eight years uh, at the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Senior Executive Service in a number of of jobs, but I was an appointee of uh, President uh, Bill Clinton. I helped start the AmeriCorps National Service Program, a sort of domestic Peace Corps that allows people to serve their way through uh, college. Uh, I uh, helped start the Community Food Security Initiative and the Food Recovery and Glean Initiative to recover excess food and make sure hungry people got as much of that as possible. Possible, even as I caution, that was not a long-term answer to hunger. And really, through that work at USDA is how I got most intimately into the hunger field and how I started my first connections with food banks around the country. And I'll just say, the reason I'm in this is it connects everything I care about. Hunger is a poverty issue. It's a racial, civil rights, and equity issue. It's a gender issue because households headed by women are the hungriest in uh, America. It's a disability rights issue because people with disabilities have very high uh, hunger rates. It's an environmental issue about how we grow and and process and distribute our our food. So everything I care about comes together in this hunger uh, work. And a lot of people in the hunger movement had backgrounds in social services work, which is absolutely vital. Backgrounds in the food 
food service industry really, really useful. Backgrounds in social work or uh, legal services work, really, really helpful to this fight. My background was in politics and communication, and I identified this first and foremost as a political problem and a, a failure of our political system, and so I've always felt like my unique background in politics and policy Well, I work. can certainly see that, Joe, how you would would fit that now what i want you to do for me is uh because i'm a little slow and but i'm worth the wait (laughs) i I want you to i want you to relist those uh areas where hunger touches you started with poverty you went to civil rights and and now pick that list up for me and, and civil rights, I point out, it's vital to understand that the largest number of people in America who suffer from hunger and food insecurity are white. The largest number of people in America who suffer from poverty are white. The largest number of people in America who receive food stamps, SNAP benefits are white. That being said, people of color are disproportionately likely to suffer from poverty and hunger, and the poverty rate and the food insecurity rate for African-American households is about double that for white households. Okay, we're going to come up on a break here for just a minute. So you said poverty, civil rights, gender... Equality, uh, environment, disability rights uh, all come together. Environment and disability rights. Yes. All right. He's Joel Berg. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. That's Jerry Brisson. We're going to be back for a second segment with Joel. In just a second, you come back and be with us. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Phil Knight, Jerry Brisson, our guest, Mr. Joel Berg, the CEO for Hunger Free America. And Jerry, you cannot wait to ask Joel this question. <laughs> well, and draw this out a little bit because, Joel, you're, you're touching on some points that I think are really critical for people to understand. And that is, well, what is the face of hunger or maybe who is is the face of hunger. And you talked about disabled people. You talked about uh, seniors. You talked about single parents and, you know, women trying to run a household. Um, We know that when people think about who's hungry, they don't often put together. uh, It's employed people. It's people they're actually working with, right? Sure. And so I think that that's a point that's worth just spending a little bit more time on. When you think about ending hunger or solving hunger, you're really talking about quite a few more people than than what the average person thinks when they hear hunger. So just talk about that a little bit if you could. That's a great question. And the face that people associate with hunger and the image they associate with hunger is usually a small subsection of the problem. So most people in America, in their minds, equate hunger and homelessness. So they think of it as the person on the street corner panhandling, or the person by the highway off-ramp with a sign, we'll work for food. And no doubt those are folks who struggle against hunger, but the largest number of people who are hungry in America by far aren't homeless, They are not people with mental illness. They are not people who are substance abusers. They are employed sometimes in one, two, or three jobs and still don't earn enough to feed their families. In Michigan alone, according to a report done by Hunger Free America, there are more than half a million people who are working and still don't earn enough money to feed their families. Let me repeat that. Half a million people in Michigan alone are working 
and can't afford to feed their families. Now, we know what's happened in Michigan and other parts of the country. Industrialized jobs in manufacturing and the auto sector and other sectors paid middle-class wages when those were outsourced or eliminated or repeated by robots. The jobs that came back, if the jobs came back, usually paid a, a fraction of what people were paid before. And so you have a structural economic problem that's driving hunger in America. And the other thing I would point out is most Americans assume that people in poverty are in poverty year after year after year after year, generation after generation. That's not true either. The number of people who are sometimes poor is 10 times the number of people who are always poor. Let me repeat that. The number of Americans who are sometimes poor and thus sometimes suffer from hunger are 10 times the number of people who always do, because many people uh, climb into the middle class, and then their car breaks down, and they can't get to their work that's far from their home. They have a sickness for themselves or, or their kids. A factory shuts down, and yep. they were middle class, and now they're poor. Jerry, you talk about that, people who are in and out of need. Right, and it does exactly what you just described, Joel. It it also, um, <clears throat> we talk about the benefits cliff as one of the reasons this happens, too, and it's something we've talked on the about on our show several times, but just to remind our listeners that after someone makes $11.30 an hour, every bit of money they make above that amount, the benefits that they are entitled for reduce faster than the amount of money that they make until they get to $17 an hour. So that critical point in time in a person's career where staying at work and developing the habits and the skills and, and being trained and other things that, that make a person eventually get out of poverty forever because they're now earning enough money, in that critical period of time is when it, it pays more to stay at home than to go to work. And that's not right. We, we, when you talk about the structural things that keep people from being self-sufficient, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of things that we need to consider. And, and some of the statistics, again, I want to go back to 500,000 working poor households in Southeast Michigan. And I'll add to that that we know that 47... That's actually, the, for my figure, was the whole state. But yeah. But 47% of the people that we help have at least one working adult in their household. Right. And so, you know, 30 years ago when I got into this work, it just wasn't the same. If people were employed, generally they were food secure. There were some exceptions, but generally people were food secure. So it's it's a change, and it's a change that we as a community and a society have to find a way to deal with. So so anyway, just wanted to, to reiterate some of those points, Joel. I think, I think this is obviously one of the things I enjoyed so much about talking with you is the, the amount of knowledge and information you have about this issue. What else, what else do you put at the top of your list of things that people really need to know about this issue? And, and, and I would say that, uh, to reiterate what you said, the benefits cliff is, is vital. The centerpiece of a well-functioning social policy in America should be rewarding work. And that's the bottom line. Uh, whether you're a progressive who thinks the safety net should be really robust, or you're conservative who would prefer people to stand on their own two feet and, and need less of a safety net, although I'd argue people sometimes ignore how much the wealthy get from government. But that aside, whether you're a progressive or a conservative, you should agree that working 
should uh, enable a family to do better than non-working. And and right now the the incentives uh, are are the reverse for that. And it's not because of this great liberal policy. Frankly, uh, often it's it's the conservative policies that say cut people off from benefits immediately. So I think that's important to people to understand. People want to say this isn't a political issue, and I get that people hate politics, but this is the ultimate political issue. America almost ended hunger entirely in the 1970s when our political system was better functioning, when we had a bipartisan consensus that raised wages and had a more robust safety net. And the only reason we had this massive problem is our public policies have gone backwards uh, since the 1980s, giving the false impression that underfunded charities can somehow do the work of a well-functioning society. And I point out America is the only industrialized Western nation on the planet that has this level of poverty and hunger, even per capita. It's not a function of that's just how life is. It's a function of this is how we've decided to let our society be. Well, I think the the part that uh, one of the points I wanted to just emphasize, Joel, that you made is that, um, and you know, you guys are really smart. Y'all both, you both are very intelligent and intellectual, but I got to put the cookies on the lower shelf. So I tell myself. (laughs) You know, I got to put the cookies on the lower shelf so I can understand. Wouldn't it be a novel idea that work supports, childcare, food, housing, actually supported work? Wouldn't that be a novel concept that it stretched across the wage scale rather than dropping people off of a cliff? And I think that's part of the policy that people who value work and want people to be self-sufficient. And by the way, I happen I happen to be a believer that people want to be self-sufficient. They don't want to need these services that are available to them. But if we could get simply a change in policy that would reward and incentivize work and stretch those housing, childcare, and food across the wage scale until someone met, came, made enough for self-sufficiency, I think that would change the game completely. Yes, but I do want to emphasize, even though the wage cliff is a real thing and needs to be fixed, right now much of the safety net is a work support program. Most of the families receiving SNAP, the correct name for old food stamps benefits, are are working uh, families. Uh, The earned income tax credits, which lifts millions of working families out of, of, of poverty, by definition only goes to working families. So uh, I want to be careful not to, with a broad brush, say the whole safety net is somehow uh, disincentivizing uh, work. But I I want to be clear that it it can do better. Absolutely. He's Jerry Bassan. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. He's Joel Berg, the CEO of Hunger Free America. He's our guest, and he'll be right back with us in just a moment. Food First, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Phil Knight here, Jerry Brisson, Joel Berg, the CEO for Hunger Free America. And uh, Joel, um, we've talked a a little bit off air here about the pretty unique setting that you've helped create in New York City. What is that called, Jerry? A, A hunger, a hunger hearing. Is, right. Is what you called it. Yeah. 
And and my and you know, Joel, I'm going to ask you to talk about this. I just want to say I read your testimony uh, at the hearing, and I was really impressed with the number of issues that were coming up as part of the hearing. Many of which people don't really think about very often. Uh, whether it's you know the well, it was various different impacts to a lot of different suggested policy changes in New York, and so I'm not going to try to cover all that. I think you'd be way better at it. But tell us a little bit about this annual conversation that you're having in the city of New York about hunger? Well, over the last 18 years, I've been in this position. We work nationwide now, but we're based in New York City, and we never forget our home, and there's still significant hunger and poverty programs in New York City and problems, that in those 18 years, we've succeeded in forcing the debate over hunger and poverty to the center of the political debate. We held a uh, nonpartisan forum for all the people running for mayor a number of years ago to uh, ask them to address these issues, just as in a number of months from now, November, we're doing such a, a platform for all the people running for president in South Carolina. So we've forced the political system to say that if you want to be a serious candidate, you need to address this. And we've helped convince a number of the speakers of the New York City Council. So we have a mayor and a city council who often work together, sometimes fight uh, and sometimes in between. We've used the city council uh, to uh, be a, a check and balance on, on the mayors and a prompt and another source of uh, holding the system accountable. And one of the things we've gotten them to do is every year to hold a hearing on hunger in New York City to talk about the progress we've made and the problems that we still face. And at least two of the last uh, three speakers of the city council have made hunger reduction a top priority. What does that mean? The city of New York's allocated $18 million just out of the city budget to soup kitchens and food pantries. They put pressure on um, Mayor Bloomberg to take away significant barriers he had placed in the way of SNAP participation. Mayor Bloomberg had actually insisted on fingerprinting people to get SNAP, ridiculous treating them like criminals that did not reduce fraud. We got that removed, and through our lobbying and through these hearings and through other work, we increased SNAP participation in New York City by more than a million people most of whom were working people, children, and seniors, and people with disabilities. And that brought in hundreds of millions of dollars of extra federal funds into New York City a, a year. We succeeded in getting the mayor to say we're going to do in-classroom school breakfast, which will eventually get a few hundred thousand kids a day extra food. So it's great to address these issues. It's great to raise awareness. But I'm always uh, hard-nosed that if the awareness doesn't lead to improved policies and improved programs and it doesn't lead to fewer people being hungry than would have otherwise been hungry, we failed. And that's why I keep uh, pushing our elected officials to do more and better. My view as an advocate, my job is to get elected officials to do more than they would do if I didn't exist, but not so much that if they did it, they'd lose their jobs. <laughs> and what I mean by that is it's our job to press them to, to, to work within the system and to lead the system and to build public awareness. But if the public support for these programs just isn't there. You can't only blame the elected officials. It's the job of advocates to help build that public support. You know, Joel, one of the things that I, again, was impressed with when I when I read your testimony and, and these times that I've spoken with you is that you you really do take a very data-centered approach to this, where you, when you say make an impact, you're not just telling a, a sob story, though we know that there's a lot of suffering and those and those stories are all too real. Yet, 
to make progress, if we really want to end a problem like this, we have to demonstrate that it matters when the problem is solved. And so I know that you've you've done a lot of research and a lot of work, even the statistics that you used at, at the opening of the show to talk about this is who needs help. This is how much help they need. And so, it, and and the only thing we really didn't talk about was how long. We talked about it a little bit from the standpoint that people come in and out of this. But you can't solve a problem if you don't know who needs help, how much help they need, and for how long. And I know that uh, just reading your testimony, that's that's a lot of the work that you're doing. It's not just about pressuring people from a from a conflict standpoint, but enabling people, empowering people who make policies policy decisions to have the information they need to really understand the impact of our work. And I think, you know, that is, um, it's so critical. And even when you talk about the presidential forum that you've got coming up in South Carolina, you know, my hope is that we will get to hear that each of these candidates have information at their disposal that's going to help them articulate a better and clearer understanding of this problem. I agree facts are critical, but I also believe, and I wrote a whole book on this called America, We Need to Talk, a self-help book for the nation, that this is also beyond facts. This is about political power. Uh, and Frederick Douglass once said, power never concedes itself willingly, it never has, and never will. And so in the end, we need to do three things. Mobilize the tens of millions of people most affected by this problem. And nationwide, it's 37 million Americans. That's more than the combined population of Florida, West Virginia, and all of New England. So we need to better mobilize the people most affected by this problem to demand change on their behalf, to convince people in the middle that it's not just some little other or some uh, separate kind of people that need help, that this is really affecting the middle class, and so it could happen to them. And, and then on the other side, I know no one wants to say anyone's pro-hunger, but my personal view, if you consistently oppose both a safety net and higher wages for low-income people, the only logical data-driven conclusion is that you are pro-hunger, and I do think we need to do a better job of calling out people who, who consistently have a record in elected office that's going to increase hunger. So I wish uh, facts would uh, resolve all these debates, but we've known for decades that programs that provide nutrition assistance to working people, children, and seniors dramatically reduce hunger, and yet people are obsessed when there are 30 million people or 40 million people in the program and one of them wins the lottery. They're not concerned as much about the 40 million hungry Americans as they are as one person won the lottery and they didn't deserve it. So yes, facts are important. I'll always keep coming back to the facts, but I also think we have to hold our elected officials accountable when they ignore facts. The truth of the matter is we know climate change is happening, and some people are paid a lot of money to deny that we know what's causing it once fixes it. And I would argue that people are also paid a lot of money to deny we know what causes hunger and poverty and what fixes it. Well, Joel, tell us how, uh, tell our listeners how they can find you. Are you uh, you got to be on the web here somewhere. We are hungerfreeamerica.org. Can't get simpler than that. For those of you who still prefer phones, we pick up our phones. Uh, we're at 212-825-0028. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. But uh, easiest is to go to our website, hungerfreeamerica.org. And you can also find opportunities not only to learn more about the policy, but to use your skills to volunteer more effectively. Of course, we'd love donations as uh, the Harvest, you know, the Gleaners Food Bank. Uh, needs the donations and hunger-free America. 
America, so I'll pitch you know, everyone, uh, but uh, we'd love to get you involved. Excellent. Hunger Free America, he's Joel Berg. He's the CEO for that organization. Thank you, Joel, for being our guest today. Jerry, last word. Really appreciate you, Joel. Appreciate your work. Thanks for holding us all more accountable, and uh, more to come, my friend. Excellent. Look forward to working with you. All right. Jerry and I will be right back to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry, Joel Berg, the CEO for Hunger Free America. And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody's ever going to doubt that Joel's convinced about how his passion just comes right through the microphone. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And he's been at this a long time. You know, it's interesting to talk to somebody who's had the number of different roles that Joel has had. Uh, he's clearly a political guy. I mean, that's where he spent a lot of his time. And it's nice to see people really invest in the political process uh, because there's no doubt about it. The political process generates a lot of change. And we're at a time right now, there's a, there's you know a lot going on in Michigan around the political process. We've got the redistricting going on. We had uh, our Secretary of State here talking about Jocelyn that. Jocelyn Vinson. We've, we've got changes in the in how people can vote and and those changes should make it easier for, for people to vote. Another you know really positive change in Michigan around the political process. And, you know, Joel, uh, I I find him really interesting to listen to. Man, he can talk fast, you know. And so, uh, but that's because there's so much in there that he wants to get out and that he knows is important. Well, it's a little hard for a guy from Alabama to keep up with him. You know, I mean, when my mom writes me letters, she writes slow because I don't read fast. (laughs) So uh, you're right. I mean, he has a wealth of information and uh, a very... uh, I wouldn't say unique, but definitely a very passionate perspective on this work. Um, There's a couple of times he talked about um, uh, things that I I wasn't quite sure about. Maybe you can help unpack them for me. Um, 500 million, 500,000 working families um, that don't make enough in Michigan to feed their families. Is that what I heard right? Yeah, and uh, so I didn't actually... uh know exactly where he's pulling that from, uh, but it sounds right to me. It, it's it's 1.4 million people in Michigan total who are food insecure. Right. 1.4 million total is the latest information yep. that we have. For Feeding America. Exactly right. right. So 500,000 would be the number of, of people in that 1.4 million who are actually working. Now, that's individuals, not households. Right. Right. So when we talk about 47 percent of the households that we serve have at least one working adult, that that feels right to me because there's other people in those households, 2.2 people per household on average. So uh, so that feels like a, a good number to me. And what it means and what we've been saying is we have to be particularly sensitive to policies that affect working people because so many working people are food insecure. Right. So I'm going to try to pull this back a little bit to the monologue. And we talked about sigmoid curve and how we've got to be ready to go to the next level up, the next level of effectiveness. Um, And so I think Joel is definitely in that intersection where he's create things are there are lots of good things happening in our movement to create food security. But, you know, he's talking about implementing some 
pretty significant changes like just in work supports, that's causing a lot of chaos for people in their minds and their hearts and in policy work. But in order to go to the next level of food security in this state as well as in this nation, we've got to change things and they've got to be changed so that they actually do support things that uh, people are working towards. Well, yes, and uh, and we know that most of the people that we work with are either working or would rather be working than not. I mean, the some of the fallacies about people who are food insecure are are things we have to change. You know, we believe people are worth investing in. It's one of our biggest tenets of mm-hmm. everything we do. That you're not talking about needy people. You're talking about people who are worth investing in, and and that investment will get a very big return if we do this in the right ways. And so that's that's the game, and, and that's what we got to do. So, you know, Jerry, we've talked about on the show uh, the, the concept that we use, who wins when we win. Right. When food security gets created, who wins in that? And we talk about... We talk about health care, we talk about education, we talk about workforce and workforce retention, all this stuff. Joel went at it a little differently, didn't he? When he listed how food insecurity is an issue of poverty, it's an issue of, it's a civil rights issue, um, it's a gender equality issue, and uh, and he went through and and listed about three more um, uh, areas of our society and culture Food insecurity has a direct correlation to. And even disproportionate relation. And I think the point he was trying to make was it affects some people more than others. And we have to remember that sometimes those people's voice isn't loud enough. That we need to listen to the people who are most affected by the problem as we try to solve it. And I do think that is a really important point to make. Yeah, he did make that. He did make that. Later on in the show, you know, he talked about uh, that we really need... So there's 37 million people across the United States that are struggling with food security, and we need to mobilize those people. They need to become advocates for themselves. And that falls right into the show that we had with Jocelyn Benson, our Secretary of State, and some of the work she's doing in helping people find that empowerment through the democratic process. Right. And that's really important. I mean, if if you want people to be successful, then... Being part of all these processes is part of what success should look like, right? I mean, I know that that my parents, who weren't particularly political, still, they taught us as kids, you vote. Sure. This is your chance. This is, you know, this is your opportunity. A little better, still better. Yeah. Right? So even if you don't have all the choices you think you would like, still exercise your political uh, influence to the degree that you can, and that's a good thing, and it's empowering, and I still do, and I believe in it a great deal. Well, I, I do as well. Um, so let's cover a couple other things before we get run out of time here. Joel Berg also said that we need to convince the middle class that is, that, that food insecurity in America is a middle class issue. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think we all know so many people live paycheck to paycheck, and if we if we look at the, the people that come to see us now who need help, the three biggest issues are uh, loss of employment, a health issue, or the loss of a breadwinner from the home. All three of those things can affect someone in the middle class. Say those three again. It's loss of employment, 
it's a health issue, or the loss of a breadwinner from the home. Those right. are the three biggest things. And that could that, come through death or divorce or uh, some other life upset. Exactly right. right. Exactly right. And so uh, so therein lies the, the reason why the middle class is not that far away from this. And many people that we see were recently middle class and now struggling to, to get enough food for their family. Well, I believe in that. Of all the things he said, I believe in that because I've lived it. And you can hear my testimony on this show about how I struggled with food insecurity with me and my two boys. Yeah. And so I, I, I believe in that. So let's, let's deal with the elephant in the room, right? The, one of the, the third thing he said there is uh, you either believe in a large safety net um, or you believe in higher wages. And if you don't believe in either one, you must be pro-hunger. Well, that's provocative, right? Yeah. And purposefully so. I mean, I think we do need to be aware of the policy decisions we make, especially when you take everything into account, right? We need to be very mindful of the fact that we should be motivating and encouraging people to be at work. It's what people want. It's the most success that we can achieve. And so when we have policies that erode people's desire to be at work, we're making mistakes, right? We're making the job harder, for sure. Absolutely right. So, I mean, now that's pretty provocative. <laughs> and and I like it. I'm glad there's people out there who are provocative, right? I, I tend to be a, a little more nuanced, but even still, it's it's great to hear that kind of passion and that kind of thought process as we have so many guests on our show who are smart, dedicated, passionate people who want to solve this problem. Well, time for a little food for thought. The seven last words of a dying organization, bureaucracy, or movement are, we've never done it that way before. And that may be the tipping point at the top of the sigmoid curve. The one that determines which level of impact will the organization go to next. The one above or the one below. I am thankful that our leaders are growing, learning, and challenging themselves to be more than they were and better than they've ever been. Why? Because we haven't solved the stubborn problem of hunger yet. While we strive to untie ourselves to the past that holds us back, We unite in our efforts to do the best we possibly can because we know there are kids, senior citizens, and working families that are dependent upon us to be there at our best for them. Thanks for listening. Catch all our shows at foodfirstmichigan.org. And until next week, it's Food First, folks. Food First. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.